And good afternoon to you. My, uh, my name is Mike, as Johnny mentioned. Um, I'm one of the elders here. And it's great to be together this afternoon to carry on in the book of Ezra. Um, so if you've got a Bible to hand, uh, whether it's electronic or if you've got a paper Bible, there's some Bibles at the back. If you need some, just stick a hand in the air. Someone will bring one to you. And turn to Ezra chapter 5. Yeah, someone on the blue Bibles, can you give me, give me a page number for someone? 476, thank you, Sally, 476. If you're in the blue Bibles, 476. If you're in another Bible, if you've gone to Psalms, you've gone too far, just work back from there and you'll find Ezra. Uh, it's a book that I think many of us aren't as familiar with, but it's really great to get into, and we want to, to learn more from God's Word all the time. Um, so that's why we're, we're studying it together. And just to give you a heads up, it's, it's a long section we're looking at today. So we're looking at chapters 5, verse 6, all the way through to the end of chapter 6. Um, so it's a li- really long section. But you know when you eat a meal, what do you, you don't just try and eat the whole thing in one, right? You cut it into pieces, you take it bit by bit. That's what we're going to do. So I'm going to look at section by section so we can digest it, chew over it a little bit, then we'll read the next bit and chew over it and so on. That's how we're going to do it this afternoon. Okay, so we're going to start with the first section, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, through to the end of chapter 5. Okay, so let me read that first bit, and then we'll have a look at it. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until the report could go to Darius, and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tataniah, governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and Shephar Bozani and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent to him read as follows, To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God, The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them for their names so that we could write down the names of the leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. And then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but is not yet finished. Now, if it pleases the king that a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem, Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. Great. Let's have a look at this first bit. Actually, let me me help you understand how this whole section works. This is the big question that we're asking this afternoon. I wonder if you heard it in that reading. It was in verse 9. There's that question. Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and finish it? That's the key question that we're answering in chapters 5 and 6. Now, if you haven't been with us, if you're not familiar with the book of Ezra, let me just remind you of the context. Look, the people of God had been in exile for many years. 
But God has finally brought them back to the promised land where they were meant to be so that they could rebuild the temple once again. And this was under that, that decree of this great king Cyrus that we saw right at the start of Ezra chapter 1. So they've come back and they started to rebuild, but there are these opponents in the land who try and stop them. Tatanai, that's one of the guys, local regional governor of Trans-Euphrates of Samaria, his buddies, they come together and they're like, stop building. And they're doing everything they can to stop them right the way from Cyrus through to King Darius' reign. Darius is about two kings after King Cyrus. About 10 years has gone by. And there's one point when the building of the temple stops because of the opposition. But then we saw last week at the start of chapter 5, the people of God start rebuilding again. King Darius hasn't given them permission. And I mean, you can't exactly hide it, right? When you're building a temple, you can't hide the stones underneath your belly and pretend you're not building. It's pretty clear. They're carrying these huge stones, these massive timbers. And so the opponents see that. And what do they do? They come and say, look, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and finish it? In other translations, it says, who gave you this decree to rebuild this temple? The word for decree in Ezra is used for royal decrees of kings. And here's the answer that these two chapters will give to us and show us. Who authorized you? God did. There is a decree above any king's decree that overrules all, and that is God's. See, today as Christians, we can get asked similar questions. By whose authority do you do God's work today? By whose authority do we build his church today? By whose authority do you speak and teach of these things? Who has decreed to you to go and tell people about this man, Jesus, and call them to follow him? God did. If you forget everything else I say from now, that is the big thing I'd love us to remember. We live, we walk, we work for God confidently and expectantly. Why? Because we are under his authority, because God tells us. God decrees it, God commands it. Now, I get it, in our culture today, we don't like that idea of the word authority. It's a loaded term, particularly in the West. It makes us feel uneasy. There's links to power, potential for abuse. It's hierarchical. We live in a culture that is suspicious and questions almost every authority out there. If you think about it, though, the reality is that we find it hard to live without authorities around us. We actually always live under some sort of authority all the time. Think about it, with governments, they give us authority, they have authority with their law. If at any time we see someone breaking it or we are breaking it, anybody can call on us and the authorities step in. If you don't pay your taxes, if you speed, if you steal from other people, and without those authorities, it will be absolute anarchy, right? Even at work, you will have authorities over you. I don't know if any of you are a CEO. Congratulations if you are. Well done, actually, that's incredible. But you will have authorities that set laws around you, boundaries around you. There will be regulators around you who determine what ingredients you use for the cakes you make or the materials you use for the buildings you build. You can even argue that they're under the authority of the market. Consumers sort of have authority over you, over your products, over your business. And our culture has shifted all the more because nowadays people, what, what do they want to do? They want to be their own authority. But based on what? Even that, there is an authority that shapes and directs, whether that's our own inner heartfelt desires or other people and voices that we look up to. 
who seem to have some authority in the culture around us. We give them a name today, influences. But it's surprising how much authority they have over people. We buy things that they have, the products that they use, the advice that they give, as though they have authority in this world. And I think that's why this question matters. By whose authority do you re rebuild the temple and finish it? To put it another way, by whose authority do you live serving this so-called God as a Christian? Maybe that's a question that you're asking here this afternoon. You're not a Christian. You're exploring things. You're wondering what this God of the Bible is all about. And you're wondering, is he really worth giving my life for? In that question, you're asking, do I want to follow and trust and submit to this God of the Bible? Do I want him as the authority in my life? That's the thing, if you look carefully around the world, you can spot people that are building their own little temples and their shrines to the authorities in their lives, where they listen, they follow, and even worship these things or people. And so you're here asking, what of this God of the Bible? It's great that you're here, you're intrigued enough to inquire, well, hopefully I can show you something of that this afternoon. But for those of us who would call ourselves Christians and followers of Christ, we need to be reminded of this, of this too. Whose authority do we live under? We so often forget it. But God, why does it matter? Why is it a good thing for us? Well, in this entire section, just three things I want to point out. Here's the first reason. God's authority gives us a clear identity. God's authority gives us a clear identity. As the people of God are challenged, did you hear how they respond? Look at this, verse 11. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. See, this is the God of the Bible. He is the one who moves mountains, who painted the clouds, who planted the Amazon rainforest, who raised up wildlife, who gave us life, who gives us breath right now as we sit here this afternoon. This God has authority over the heavens and the waves, the sun, moon, and stars over all of creation. Think about it, with, with anything you have, with anything you buy, any product you have in your house, just, just imagine something that you have, right? There is a creator behind it who knows the purpose for it, who knows how it was made, for what use it has. They have the authority, right? Look, take something like this. Let me show you. Here we go, my goodie bag. Okay, so when I got married to my wife, this was in the drawer, and I, have no, I had no idea what this was for. Some of you, I'm, I'm sure you'll know, Please keep quiet, just for the others who don't. Okay, so you look at this thing, and I'm like, what is this for? It looks sort of like a spoon, but it's useless because there's a hole at the back here, and it's flat. It makes no sense. So is it a cooking utensil? But you, what can you cook with this? I thought maybe pizza, but it's pizza for tiny people. Like, it doesn't make sense. But what do I then do? I then go and see the instructions from the creator who made this thing. And I find out this is for slicing cheese. It's weird. But you don't slice it with this thing here. This is blunt. It's here. You slide it across the block of cheese, and this slice comes out like this. It's a weird thing. Why not just use a knife? Anyway. All right. But then, look, that's my point. It is this God, this great, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-creating God who's made it all, who by being creator has all authority over everything. Just like the person who made this weird cheese slice thing has authority for that 
thing. I don't know what it's called. Tea slicer. God is authority over all. We so often forget this. And the amazing thing is his purpose and desire for us was this, to be with us, to be a blessing unto us, for us to look to him, to worship him, to relate with him. That is what God intended. That's been his call and his promise right from the start of the Bible. This is the history of humanity. The whole of this book is about a story about God who wants to be with his people. It's a story of promise. You know what? We mess up. Humanity messes up. But throughout the Bible, God keeps promising his people, look, I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to call you my people from every nation, tongue and tribe to myself. He promises it to Abraham, to David, and it goes on and on right through to this period here in Ezra. And it's that same God who has brought his people back out of exile, freeing them from rule of another king. And he's reestablishing his promise he made long ago to say, yes, I am the creator God. I am ever powerful and faithful to bring you home. You see, the point of Ezra is this whole relationship, it's symbolized by the rebuilding of the temple. The temple is where God's presence is on earth among his people. The temple is hugely symbolic of this relationship between us and him. And even in the face of adversity, as we saw last week, when the opponents stopped them from building, you see that wonderful verse, God's watchful eye was over his people. He raises up prophets to remind them, look, do not be afraid. God's promise is still good. God is still with us. So keep going. Keep building. This is the God of the Bible. He's the author of creation. He's the author of salvation. And he calls you and I to come to him. He is the authority and once the people grasp that, do you see how it clarifies their identity? Look at verse 11 again. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Knowing by whose authority they rebuild helps them to understand who they are. I think we live in an age where we are so desperately trying to find and understand our identity. Who am I? What does it mean to be human? And here's what we learn from Ezra. We have got to view ourselves in light of this God, the one who has all authority over creation, over everything. And when you realize this, you can start to see how we are but servants of this great God of heaven and earth. We start to see, look, God is God, I am not. God is ruler and master, I am not. And it pushes against this innate desire in the human heart to be our own gods. Do you remember earlier I said humanity messed up? Do you know how they messed up? This is it. First humans in the garden, they look up at the tree, don't eat from this tree, but the fruit looked good and tasty. Why? Not because it was ripe and plush, it may have been, I don't know, it doesn't say that. But why did it look good? Because it reflected their heart's desire to do what? To be like God. And this pattern continues throughout Scripture. You see this all around us today. But here in Ezra, the people know for sure who they are because they know by which authority they live and build. We are servants. We are creatures created by the God of heaven and earth, and we've been called by him to do this work. 
to serve him. But it's not only this. They go on to say, look, we are servants, yes, but we also know our past. We know our heritage. Um, a few years ago, like, do you remember DNA kits? Has anyone ever done one of those? Oh, a couple of people have. Brave. I, I'm, I'm terrified of it. Because I, I, if I do it, I wonder if I might find out I'm not actually South Korean. It's a weird fear, but I'm like really anxious about doing it. But look, those were really popular for a while. They, they, maybe they still are. Why? Because, it, because we look to our past in the hope that it might help us to understand more of who we are, more of my story. Well, the people of God here are starting to get it. They look to their history in light of this God, and they know their heritage. And they know it's nothing to do with which country you grew up in, where you were born, your ethnic mix, your educational background, or how, how many famous members you have in your family and your ancestors. It's nothing to do with that. Look at verse 12. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. See, the people of God get it. We are a people who have historically angered God, who have historically messed up. Did you notice the detail in that verse? See, as the Persians, as the historians would see it, they would have known Jerusalem was conquered by this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. But did you notice how the people of God spoke? We angered the God of heaven, and he, God, gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. See, they know their place as servants of God. They know they were called to be his people, to be faithful to the God who was ever faithful to them, to a God who was slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in mercy, and yet time and time again, they forsake God's kindness and his faithfulness. And they know we're a people who deserve to be handed over. See, handed over, that is a term for judgment. And they got, they, got, they understood that exile was a sign of judgment for angering God. And this is so fundamental for us to grasp because this is our story. No matter our backgrounds, our ethnicities, our education, this is true for us all. That we are those made as creatures of God himself in his image and yet we are those who are so quick to be unfaithful and to deny God. Just like these people here, we are servants who have historically angered God himself. Let me just ask you this question. How often do you think in this way? Do you ever look to God and start to reflect and think, man, I am so small. He is so great. As you read through Scripture, as you meditate, do you start to see how great God actually is? Does it ever make you stop and think, man, praise him for who he is, how great he is? And in that, do you start to realize how much smaller we are as human beings and as you see that, do you start to see how even as those small creatures, we so often mess up, forsake God, don't honor him, we don't look to him, don't trust him. As I reflected on this this week, I, I, saw, I looked into my heart and I realized what I'm like. I realized that I like to think I'm the master, not the servant. Dare I say, I sometimes even ask God to act like a servant to help and serve my needs and my desires. That is what my heart is like. Why do we do this? 
because we've lost sight of who God is. I wonder why, if this is why we're struggling so much to understand our identity, because we've lost our sight of God in this generation. But when we have God in view, we see that we are but servants to a glorious and powerful master who loves his people. And this is the beautiful thing. Even though we mess up, even though we know that we anger God, I love this. Look at verse 13. It doesn't end there. Just that first word, however. But. See, the people of God have started to see, look, God is ever glorious and faithful to his people because they know God by his great authority over all overruled the authority of the great Persian king Cyrus to make sure that the people could return and rebuild and be restored with God. See, how are these people so bold in the face of adversity? Not in their own strength. We saw that back in chapter 2. There were only 42,000 people who returned. That's not a, that's not a huge number. But they are bold because they see God. They know who to fall back on. They know where their identity is. It's found in him. God's authority helps to, helps to clarify our identity. But it leads us into the second thing. God's authority is the ultimate authority. Okay, let's read the next bit. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles open, let's, let's, we're just going to read the next section. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 6. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbatana in the province of Media, and this was written on it. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tataniah, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bosnai, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree, decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house, and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. Wow, it's pretty harsh. But may God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Come back to that question again. Who has authorized you to rebuild and finish this temple? God did. And here's proof. In Ezra chapter 1, God had moved Cyrus's heart to, to allow the Israelites to return 
And now he calls Cyrus' his successor, Darius, to do exactly the same. If you read them side by side, chapter 1 and chapter 6, they are almost mirror passages. Because Ezra wants us to see the continuation of God's authority over even the mighty kings and rulers of the day. Tatanai and his psychics, they tremble under Darius. But this great Darius, he's just a little minion in God's plans. I actually got some minions. People like minions? I love minions. Just to be clear, these are my, my kids, not mine. All right, I do like them. They are just minions in God's plans. See, we can so often be wowed by human authority and power when we see CEOs, pop stars, sports stars, influencers, whatever world your brain tends to sit in. A couple of months ago, I was actually in Starbucks down in Vauxhall, just outside the station, with a friend. And I saw one of these influencers um, that I'd seen on Instagram. I'm not going to say who it was. They've got quite a few million followers. They're on TikTok, so they're quite young. And I had to double check. I was like, oh, is that them? I asked my friend, he didn't know who they were, so I was like, okay. But then I was like, bold. I went over and I was like, hi. And they're like, hi. I'm like, what do I say? So I said, this is you. And they said, yeah, it is me. I said, oh, what do I next say? I don't know. I just said, thank you for making the videos. And they're like, thanks. That was it, end of conversation. <laughs> Embarrassing, I know, but in that moment, what am I doing? I realized, I looked back, and I was, I was sort of wowed by their presence. See, we can often do this. We, we often get wowed by other people who have influence and authority. We often even seek favor from people like that. But in front of God, they are just minions. Here's something you can try. Take someone you're impressed by, someone who has power in this world, and just picture them as a minion. If you want to, do a voice filter over their voice. Ah, but I do. Like, you know, you know? Because that is all that they are before God. That is what Ezra wants to show us here. Any impressive rulers, kings, influence of this world, they have nothing on God. See, even the great king Darius, he succumbs to this greater authority of God. Did you hear what he was saying? He turns to these opponents and he says in verse 7, look, do not interfere. Don't go anywhere near the work of the temple. Don't disrupt them at all. But it's not just, ah, oh, just let them get on with it. It's just stunning how far Darius goes to honor God. Because he's then like, actually, you know what, guys? You guys supply them with everything they need from your pockets, from your royal treasuries, so that they can build and so that they can go on a sacrifice to God. Ah, not only that, look at verse 11. Anybody who gets in the way of this building is to be impaled on a pole in public. See, it seems extreme, but you, you see how serious God is in protecting this rebuild. So just imagine you're one of God's people hearing this report. For years, you've been battered by this enemy who's been trying to stop you like a big bully at school. They've been laughing at you, mocking you, turning people against you, scribbling all over your notebooks or iPads if you've got those these days. But then there's an authority, not just your teacher, but the head teacher who steps in. Who not just steps in and tells them to stop, but he says, you know what, you big bully, you go and pick up all their books, you go and take them home, you go and cook for them. You go and bring them back to school every morning. And if you ever lift a finger against this person again, you're going to get hurt real bad. 
Darius' eyes are on God's great decree. Darius, the ruler of the greatest kingdom at this point in history, he knows his place in light of God because God is authority over all, the ultimate authority. So here's the point. No matter how great a, God, a king might seem, no matter how many followers this, this, this influencer has, no matter how many speaking gigs, how well-known somebody might be, there is only one authority over all. Who's authorized you to rebuild and finish this temple? God did. Darius is evidence of that. Okay, let's just try and apply this for a moment for us today. What does this look like? Now, let me be clear on something. I don't think this means that we should expect King Charles to start doing this. I'm not saying we can't pray for that. By all means, it's great to pray for our world leaders, our governments, to turn to God and honor him and see him as their authority. That's a wonderful prayer to pray. But we don't see this pattern repeated all the time throughout Scripture. This isn't always the way God works. But here's what I think is clear. God is the ultimate authority who has the power to move kings, to move leaders, to use them for his greater purpose. For the sake of building up his people, his church today, he can and will use any means possible. Which means sometimes he will move the hearts of kings like Cyrus or Darius, but sometimes he doesn't like the period of opposition that people experienced between Cyrus and Darius. But the big thing we have to grasp is this. God has the authority to do all that he wills and needs for his church to be built today. See, that is where our confidence comes from, knowing God's all-encompassing ultimate authority. Who told you to keep living and singing of Jesus? Who told you to keep building up the church and sharing the gospel? God did. And this is true for us in the UK as much as it is for the Nigerian brothers and sisters Inez prayed for or for our North Korean sisters and brothers stuck in oppression. God is over all of us and his church. So I mentioned this last week. Some of the fastest growing churches are some of the most persecuted and opposed regions of this world. Why? Because God's people have grasped this. They know God's all-encompassing authority and power over rulers and kings. Look, maybe for some of us living in the UK, we look around the UK church and, and we see the stats trending downwards steeply. steeply. Regular churchgoers, those who believe in the Bible, they're few in number. Church buildings are being lost and turned into shops and pubs. Sometimes some of you might be the only Christian in your workplace, the only Christian in your family, in your community. And you can look around and start to think, is God still at work? Is he building his church today? And Ezra's saying, yes, remember, God is still over all and he's still at work today. Just look around this room. Take a moment, just look at the person next to you, smile at them, say hello. That's, this is evidence of God's work today. Just think back to a few weeks ago where we had Joseph, Lucy, and Tom baptized there is evidence right there of people who have publicly declared, I am a living stone and I live for Jesus. If you want a bigger picture, look to the global church. Because God is growing his church around the world. God's authority is ever-present. He is the ultimate authority. And sometimes he makes that really clear like in Darius' time and praise God when he uses leaders like that. But at other times it might not be as clear but we still praise God for he is the ultimate authority who continues to build his church today. 
And this is why it brings us to this final thing, the third thing. God's authority brings joy in our worship. Let me read this last little bit. Chapter 6, verses 13, right through to the end. Then because of the, of the decree King Darius had sent, Tataniah, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethabozani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of, God, of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400, uh, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in a work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Um, have you ever watched Grand Designs? I know Johnny talked about Grand Designs. I mean, how can you not when you're talking about building? It's like how many Grand Designs illustrations can we get? Uh, people watch Grand Designs? Okay, it's middle-aged TV, sorry. But there's an episode where a family um, tried to build a dream home right on the coast of Devon by converting a lighthouse. You might have heard about this. It sounded and it looked, the plans looked fantastic. But it was one of the saddest episodes I'd ever seen because it ended in disaster. The debts kept spiraling. The wind and the waves were so hard they just couldn't build. And at the end, it tore the family apart. It was really, it's actually really sad. I didn't cry, I almost cried. But it's so different when a project like that comes to fruition, when it's finished. Like the water tower conversion. Do people know about the water tower? Yeah, it's, it's actually like 20 minutes walk from here. There's a massive water tower that's been converted into this four, four five-story building. I don't know, Katia, you can ask Katia. She told me about it last year. But there was so much joy when that project was finished. Okay, enough about sad middle-aged TV. This is the point. When you finish building something like your dream home, there is so much joy. But how much more so for the temple, where the great God of heaven and earth is coming to dwell with his people? Who authorized you to rebuild and finish this temple? God did. The opponents know it. Even in that question, they know they're going to finish this temple. Darius knows it's happening. The people know We've seen it already, God's authority overall. He is rebuilding his temple, just as he's building his church today. And here in chapter 6, we get to that point where they complete the temple. Can you imagine the joy? A few years ago, it was just a hole in the ground with a few foundations, but now the pillars, the walls, the roof, the Holy of Holies is all there. 
The sacrifices get going. The priests are in place. They are now in his presence and they can worship in spirit and in truth. And did you hear that joy in this passage time and time again? Verse 16, they celebrate with joy. Verse 19, they celebrate. Verse 22, they celebrate with joy. Climaxing in the Passover that Johnny helped us think about earlier. The Passover was meant to be celebrated every year. But if you look through Israel's history, they, they haven't been able to do it all that much. But here they are now. Exiles who were once in a foreign land under the rule of another king, rescued, brought back to this promised land, now able to celebrate Passover once again to what seems like a new exodus for them. And you see this fulfillment in their prophecy. Do you see this detail in verse 21? You start to see how expansive this new temple will be. In verse 21, you see it's not just the Israelites who celebrate, but all people, all people who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors. Suddenly you start to see Jew and Gentile coming together to worship in the temple. Feels a bit New Testament, right? It's looking so good. But there's a problem here in Ezra's time. God's glory hasn't entered the temple. See, back when King Solomon built his temple, in 1 Kings 8, you see God's glory descend upon the temple and he's there, present with his people. But it's not here. Because it's not, this isn't the end of the story. Because this temple is a shadow of what is to come. It's not complete because God wants us to see this is pointing to the new temple that is to come. That starts with God. As God comes in the flesh, as Jesus of Nazareth, who comes to be a what? A servant. Who comes saying, I came to serve and not to be served. Who comes to dine and be with sinners, those who have angered God. Who comes to show his authority is that of God himself, like I do the will of my Father in heaven. And even when the authorities of the day, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Roman governor Pilate, they tried to stop him and, and oppress him, Jesus showed time and time again that God uses even the great leaders of the day for his purpose, to rescue his people and see the foundations of the church laid. As this Jesus, the very Son of God, bears his own cross to lay his life down for his people, he sets in place this new exodus to carry his people out of their exile from slavery unto sin into this promised land, into this new kingdom that he had declared. Who comes to lay down his life as the Passover lamb. Who by his sacrifice would make a way for people who have angered God to be forgiven. Who would make a way for the servants of God to be called children of God. Who would become the very cornerstone upon which the new temple would be built of Christ who would come to turn opposition and death into celebration and joy as he rises again as the living cornerstone, gathering all these living stones that are built up into this new temple, a living temple no longer bound by time or place, a temple that is not just set in Jerusalem for the Jewish people, but a temple that is expansive and gathers all people, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male or female to himself. All of this is cause for celebration. That is an era that we live in today as God continues to build his temple, his church. Who has authorized us to rebuild his temple and finish it? God has. He is calling us 
people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to go and make disciples of every nation, to be living stones, and to bring others to join to be living stones. So let's join him in this work. Let's join him in this work of rebuilding this new temple, the church today, as he calls us, because it's the cause of and the end of our celebration and joy when we will stand with God in eternity as his living temple, where he will dwell with us into eternity. Let me close by asking you this question. Where do you think God is particularly calling you to build with him? It could be specifically with a work colleague, a family member, a friend who you need to approach and say, look, do you want to come and, and be a living stone? Do you want to come and hear about Christ? Who's authorized you to do this? God has. It might be that you want to find and consider ways of reaching the community around you to reach London for Christ. There are people, nations, tribes, tongues gathered around us here. Or it could be that God is calling you elsewhere to go further, to move, to go abroad, to join a church plant somewhere else. Where could you be serving God, building with him today? Be bold as you pray about that. And remember, who has authorized you to do this? God has. And that goal is ultimate joy and celebration with God into eternity. Look, we need to finish. But uh, this is what I wanted us to see. Who has authorized us? God has. We need to be clear on God's authority because that will give us clarity in our identity. It will remind us of, that he is the ultimate authority over all rulers and authorities. And it, it shows us that our end goal is to see joy and celebration from now into eternity with him and his people in this new temple. Let's keep our eyes on that as we head out this afternoon. Let me pray. Father, help us to see the glory of who you are, to see you in all your authority over all creation, over all rulers and kings, to see that your authority is good because it brings us into joy and celebration. Father, help us to worship you rightly for who you are, to know that you are a God who redeems, who forgives, who restores, who rebuilds, for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.